This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. The only way that we're going to make real change is to have what I call those grassroots conversations. And that means not only confronting racism, like if you see somebody you know, out in public and you need to say something to them, but you also need to have those conversations with your family and friends. And those are the really tough, hard, painful talks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Leisha Michelle, an author and anti-racist educator. Her new book, The White Allies Handbook, provides readers with the tools to get off the sidelines and onto the front lines of the fight against racism. Leisha, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you for having me. The White Allies Handbook is hitting bookstores in July. Mm-hmm. Um, and I normally wait to interview authors until their books are actually out, but I didn't want to wait to talk to you. Can you give us a preview? Sure. Um, so the White Allies Handbook is an actionable book. I think that's what makes it very different from a lot of other books that talk about anti-racism work that are out there right now. Um, you get four weeks to get through the book. Um, every chapter has great information that's going to take you forward in your ally journey. I'm also requiring that you journal. I'm requiring that you do complete the actions that are at the end of every chapter. Um, there's also scenarios to role play. I also tell everyone who's reading the book that this is not work that can be done in a bubble. You need an accountability partner. You need a, a group of people to work with, group of white people to work with, because the goal is that you're not just reading things like white fragility. You're not just reading those books and saying, okay, now I'm an anti-racism warrior or whatever. You're not. You have to take the information that you learn and actually use it. And I encourage that throughout the book. Um, anti-racism work is not something that can be done on the sidelines. You have to actually be uncomfortable. You have to confront racism. You have to work on yourself. You have to work on your family, your friends. Um, that's why I wrote the book, because I don't see enough white people actually taking risks and making real change. Well, you beat me to my next question, <laughs> which is about forcing those uncomfortable conversations, about asking people to to leave that that bubble and that comfort zone and have the discussions that they have been taught that I was taught growing up, you don't have in polite society. Why is that so important? You know what's interesting about your question is 
I actually never knew that until I became an adult. I did not know that white people were told not to say things like black or not to say things about racism because it makes it worse. I just never knew that. So, you know, as an adult and someone who constantly works with white people to explain to them that that is counterproductive to what we want to do, it is paramount to change. You have to have those uncomfortable conversations regularly. But before you can have those conversations, you know, I think one thing that I say a lot that a lot of people, a lot of white people really struggle with is the first real conversation you have to have is with yourself. You know, how are you contributing to white supremacy? How are you contributing to racism? Because you are, whether you're actively doing it or you're passively doing it by staying silent, you're definitely part of the problem. The only way that we're going to make real change is to have what I call those grassroots conversations. And that means not only confronting racism, like if you see somebody you know, out in public and you need to say something to them, but you also need to have those conversations with your family and friends. And those are the really tough, hard, painful talks. You know, I work with a lot of uh, people who want to be allies. And I cannot tell you how many times they have told me, you know, I had to cut somebody out of my family who, you know, I love because they're so racist. Or I had to, you know, not be friends with someone I've been friends with for 20 years because they're racist and I don't want to be around that. Or I had to go to my child's school and have a conversation with a teacher because my kid came back and told me that the teacher said something racist. That is the work. And is it fun? No. Is it necessary? Yes. Because if we have more people doing it at that level, we're going to make real change. In some of your other writings, you've described this really shocking moment of awareness. I believe it was in 2016 when you were a member of Pantsuit Nation. Oh, yeah. And the, <laughs> the community there had this prevailing idea that, and I'm going to quote you here, if you talk about racism, that's what makes it bad. Yeah, um, Pantsuit Nation is still a thing. Um, I think they've gotten very involved, way more in politics now than I think originally. I still think they're around 3 million people. I mean, it's a massive uh, organization now. Um, they've always had the problem that they don't want to delve into like the stuff that's sticky, the things that are difficult. And for them, that was definitely having discussions around race. And, you know, I still pay attention to what happens in that group, but I also find them for the size that they are just extremely ineffectual when it comes to any type of anti-racism work. And I have heard from multiple white people. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard, you know, well, if you talk about race, you're being divisive. If you talk about race, you're making it worse. You know, if you talk about race, you're putting a focus on something that we don't need to focus on. If we don't talk about it, it'll get better. And, you know, what thing in society, what ill in society gets better if you don't address it? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. And really, it's not about white people being honest about why they don't want to talk about race. It really comes down to that it makes them uncomfortable and it makes them defensive. And, you know, our society is definitely built on the comfort of whiteness. 
And what I've noticed is anything that is discussed that is outside of the comfort of whiteness, white people have zero interest in having a conversation about it. When you talk about doing the work, doing the hard work and forcing those conversations, I imagine your prescription is wholly different when you're talking about Pantsuit Nation and and white liberals in communion with each other versus, you know, talking to your old racist parents or something like that. I mean, there are different levels of work that need to be engaged in when you're confronting this. Yeah, absolutely. It's different conversations. You know, your racist Uncle Bob, who's, you know, 80 years old, and he's always been the way that he's been, you know, is decidedly different than having a conversation with, you know, a coworker or having a conversation with a friend who is liberal, quote unquote liberal. Your racist Uncle Bob probably isn't going to change. You know, there's very little chance of him making substantial change in his beliefs. At that point, your job changes from trying to educate him to confronting him. You have to confront him. You know, you have to be the person in your family who confronts every racist conversation, every racist in your family. You want to make them uncomfortable. At the very least, they know that if they say something like that in your presence, you're going to say something back and it's not going to be a a good situation for them. So if we're talking about having conversations with other white liberals. You know, that's interesting too, because I feel like people on the left who have, you know, they'll very quickly tell you they voted for Obama and, you know, they they vote for the right policies, you know, to help us. And I, I love that. That's great. But again, if you're voting for democratic policies and for liberal policies, but you're also uplifting white supremacy by staying quiet, not saying anything when you hear racist comments or see racism, not working on it within yourself, not confronting it anywhere, you know, staying on the sidelines, then you're complicit. So while your voting is helping us, your silence is hindering us. I am Glad you you make the distinction. We'll get to the voting piece in a sec, but the distinction between having those conversations in your circle of like-minded people versus confronting those who are irredeemable or at least unpersuadable. Because I, I mean, we hear so much talk and so much advice about persuasion politics and convincing others. And then you look at a a political landscape in which 70 million people voted for Donald Trump, and there is a part of me, and I know there is a part of a a lot of people who are done dealing with the extremists and just ready to beat them at the polls. Is that frustration or resignation shared by, by you? I mean, confront it, sure, but let's stop kidding ourselves that we're going to persuade enough people on on that side of the equation. Oh, I agree. I think that absolutely you have to confront it on the right. You might persuade a very tiny, tiny percentage of them 
to change a little bit. But I'm really focusing on the people in the middle and the people on the left who will very readily throw away a vote because they're mad that their candidate isn't the candidate for a president, you know, or the candidate that won the nomination is not progressive enough or the candidate will not forgive their student loans. It can't be politics you support that you only care about the things that are going to directly affect you. And what's interesting is if I'm talking about the fact that, you know, Black people are still fighting for equality just to vote, to have the ability to go vote, that is a basic, you know, human right in our country. So the fact that I have to have discussions with people on the left to explain to them that, you know, my family has been here for seven, eight documented generations, and we're still fighting for the rights that you take for granted. Why do I have to try to convince you that that's more important right now than you having your student loans forgiven? And I'm not saying that student loan forgiveness is is unimportant. What I'm saying is that if you're putting it ahead of basic human rights for marginalized communities like Black people, then that's a problem. And if you're only focusing on things that directly affect you, then that's a huge problem. Let's talk about voting and voting as as tactics. Uh, a vote is not a virtue signal. It's a chess move in a, in a long game. Right. And I just want you to share your wisdom and your perspective about that, because once again, we're in, we're in an era with Roe under assault and other rights being infringed upon where suddenly people are animated in an environment in which the African-American community and black women in particular have been sounding the alarm for years and years and years. Right. Well, for generations, Generations. For generations. Um, I'm glad that you brought up um, the issue of voting again. You know, what I find interesting about people, and it's typically these way more leftist white progressives who have basically said, well, I'm not getting anything from Biden, so I'm just not voting anymore. I'm not voting you know, Democrat anymore. I don't think they understand you know, like you were saying, politics and voting, it is a long game. You know, we didn't get where we are because of one round of voting. You know, Black people didn't get the rights that we do have because of one round of voting. We got those rights because generations, my ancestors, fought and protested and voted to get these rights. They fought to get the right to vote. You know, so it's very short-sighted of anyone to think that a president can make every change that you want in less than one term. Actually, you know, they're not going to make every change in the two terms. It's not going to happen. You know, you just want them to progress things in a way that hopefully another Democratic president comes into office and can continue that work. Um, it is very exhausting and tiring to constantly have to say the same things to people who I just don't think have any skin in the game when it comes to politics, again, that don't directly, that they don't think directly affect them. But it's also very selfish if you don't care about the person on the corner who 
doesn't have the rights that you have. You know, the per- the person that, you know, your, their child goes to school with your child and they don't have the rights that you have and they're still fighting for those things. You know, I, I'm hoping when people start doing the work and they buy my book that they realize that, first of all, politics are not done in a bubble and you have to think outside of your immediate needs and look at society as a whole. Who are the people suffering and what can you do to help? Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I heard you say on a, a recent interview that um, that you learned, and, and this is in quotes now, you learned early on that if you were going to have conversations with white people about race, uh, it's going to go badly 90% of the time. I'm going to knit that to another quote of yours because I think it forms part of the answer, which is that when white people are talking with each other, they listen. But if you're talking to them, they're busy thinking about how to defend themselves. Yes, that is absolutely true. Um, like I said, I, you know, I run a Facebook group that I've run for six years now, and we do train white women how to be allies. And I learned early on that I have to have other white women work with them because they'll listen to them and they will defend themselves to me. You know, they're not going to take my words as seriously. And is that frustrating? Yes. But at this point, I just want them to do the work. One thing that I've realized is if white people are talking to each other and the person who is educating the white person who just needs to do, you know, some introspection and some soul searching, that white person If I've worked with them and I know them, typically I already know that they're going to start confronting them on why is it that you don't listen to black people when they talk to you? Why is it that if a black person says to you, this thing that you just did is racist, why is it that you defend that? But when I come to you and say it, you actually will try to listen and have a conversation about it and possibly do better, you know? And there are, I think, a lot of reasons that that happens. Um, One thing that I've noticed with a lot of white people that I talk to about race is if they're on the left, if they're any kind of a liberal, not not just progressive, any kind of a liberal, I cannot tell you how many times they have come to me basically and said, well, I know I'm not a racist because I'm a liberal and I vote liberally and I support, 
you know, the things that are, are, are helping you. So I'm not part of the problem. You should be talking to the people on the right because they're the racist. You know, as a matter of fact, yesterday on Twitter, I had a conversation with a lady who ultimately blocked me. But she basically told me that the real racists were the people in the southern red states who were voting Republican and that the rest of the country was completely fine, which is ridiculous, which is absolutely ridiculous. There are racists and there are white racists and there are white leftists and right white Democratic racist in every state, you know? So that's just a conversation I have on the regular with white people. And I tell other Black people who are doing anti-racism work, don't burn yourself out having these conversations with white people who will not listen to you. You need to have a, a nice little group of white allies that you can point them to and say, okay, I'm going to have you talk to some white people because you'll listen to them. And, you know, the goal is ultimately they start their ally journey and they realize that they need to be listening, in my case, to Black women. I followed that uh, Twitter thing thread. And I think the person you're talking about kind of missed the plot. Um, yes. As usual, which is, as usual. that's usual. Yes. But I, I did bookmark it for reference. <laughs> what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Um, you know, I, I'm hopeful because of the 2020 election. You know, I really feel like I'm so traumatized by the Trump presidency. And I think a lot of Black people are. I Had he been reelected, I really don't know where I would be mentally because I feel like I was just in this depressive, hyper-vigilant state for four years. What gives me hope is uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris uh, the fact that Stacey Abrams, I'm crossing my fingers, is going to be the governor of Georgia, that will be huge. I, I think it's going to happen. I'm very excited about that. I'm also really excited about the increased number of what I see white people. Um, like I said, I'm very active on Twitter. I talk about my book a lot on Twitter. I also bring up lots of conversations around race on Twitter. And I'm very hopeful of the... I think probably several hundred white people I have who follow me who are really interested in being an ally and are okay with being criticized and called out and don't just, you know, shut down and block me and go talk about me behind the block, you know, so that does make me hopeful. I'm also hopeful that this conversation around race is going to get bigger you know, um, hopefully with my book, hopefully with some other books that are going to be coming out. And, you know, hopefully people are worried enough about the next presidential election and about the midterms um, to start having these conversations because one of the main reasons that the voting is going, has gone the way that it has in the past is because of white supremacy and racism. You know, there's no reason to vote for a candidate who does nothing for you other than uphold white supremacy. You know, think about why is that so important to you? Are you so concerned about your place in the food chain? You know, you're at the top. Is you, are you so concerned about that, that you're willing to just put everybody else 
to such a low level, you know, that they're struggling just to survive. You know, I'm not talking about financially survive. I'm talking about mentally survive. I'm talking about being in a place where you just feel healthy, just going about your day. You know, I mean, I think on top of the election and then we had the pandemic, you know, a lot of people who are already marginalized, I think, are really having a hard time. So getting to the polls, voting the way that we should be voting, making sure that we're speaking up when we see things, making sure that we're paying attention to what's going on with things like Roe v. Wade and how we can really fight that. Um we can't go back any further. You know, I, I feel like right now politics have gotten to the point where people are one issue voting and they're not really paying attention to the big picture. You know, I am part of a marginalized group, but if I were not, I would still be fighting for marginalized groups and making sure that my voice is heard and that that's how I'm voting. And, you know, that's what I'm standing up for. You asked a question rhetorically, do some white voters really care so much about their position in the the social hierarchy that they're they're willing to do whatever it takes, even hurt the body politic and vote against their own economic interest to maintain that status? But I don't think it's a rhetorical question. I think there are voters who are doing precisely that which has led to some political theorizing about the spasm of voter suppression laws and racist violence and a lot of what we're seeing today as the last gasp of a white supremacist order. Like this is the existential moment for those who believe that they will lose everything if if whites are no longer at the top of the social pyramid. Do you by that, that we are reaching a crescendo and it's, you know, sunny pastures after this, or is it more complicated? Well, I think that it's a crescendo in the way that things are getting exponentially worse for marginalized communities. I think in that sense, it's just getting worse, but I don't see an end in sight. I think a lot of people are are saying that the Republican Party is imploding and at some point it's going to be, you know, not an issue, a non-issue. But if we're talking about the 70 million people who voted for Trump, they're not going anywhere. You know, when he won in 2016, I lived in the South. I was in Atlanta at the time. And I remember the day after the election when, you know, we knew that he had won I walked out of my house and for the first time I was scared. I was scared because I lived in the South. I was in a community that was diverse, but also, you know, Atlanta has a very complicated history around race and white supremacy and, you know, still has a, you know, current history around white supremacy and race. So it was the very first time that I really had to think about, you know, do I can I be someplace where every day I have to worry, you know, um, it's not going to end by itself. You know, at this point, it's a numbers game. You know, we have to beat the Republicans. We have to have enough Democrats in office that their power structure changes. You know, I, 
Roe v. Wade has me terrified. And I'm, you know, I'm of an age, I don't have to worry about, you know, pregnancy and things like that. But I do have a lot of young women who I think look up to people, women who are my age, who've kind of been through all of that, you know, and it's our job as Democrats, as centrist Democrats, to protect these women, protect these young girls, protect these girls who are not of voting age, who are going to be of voting age soon enough and are going to be of an age where they can have children, you know, soon enough. Um, The idea that we still don't have a lot of work to do is interesting because, you know, I look at where we've been, where this country has been, the white supremacy that founded this country. And, you know, the idea that we don't have generations to go before we either beat it or we get it to a point where more often than not, we're coming out on the right side of history. You know, the fact that Trump still has as many supporters as he has just scares me. Um, He may not ever be president again, but he has an influence in this country where he is driving a lot of the violence. He is driving a lot of the politics still that dictate people's day-to-day lives. And he's also driving a lot of the opinions that we don't really think about. You know, what about his supporters that are in these boardrooms, that are on these school boards, you know, that are making decisions in these local communities that are just getting less, no media coverage, but those people's lives are changing drastically. You know, I, I think we have to get really real about what's going on. And we have to understand that the work isn't in our lifetime is not going to end. We cannot get complacent. Um, It's not as bad as it could get. It's really bad right now, but it will only get worse if we make the decision not to do anything. I think a lot of people are looking at, and a lot of wish casting here, but Trump's waning influence in Georgia, for example, and they're they're missing the point that Trumpism is far more dangerous than Trump himself. And if you take a competent Trumpist and put him in the White House, they'll be able to do so much more damage than than Trump himself. And that's what we're facing. We're not facing a single authoritarian. We're facing an authoritarian mindset. I agree. Absolutely. And, you know, it's already happening. I think there's already names that are being pushed. Um, I I don't think that Pence will be the nominee. I think that, you know, his, the fact that he spoke out even a little bit against Trump, I think is going to be his downfall as far as getting the nomination. Um, But I do think there will be a nominee who is very much a Trump supporter, who is more articulate, smarter, faster, stronger, whatever. I mean, I think he's just going to be a more palatable nominee on the surface, but with all of the hatred that Trump brought to that office. And that is dangerous because what I find really terrifying is that a lot of people on the right who maybe have decided they don't like Trump because he's belligerent and he's rude and all those things will think that 
the person who has the same Trump policies but is articulate and seems smart and charming is going to be exactly what they want and what they need and what this country needs. And I don't think that they're going to care that those policies are really to punish and to hurt people who are non-supporters, who are on the left, who are marginalized people, who are people who are already struggling. And what's interesting is that a lot of them are already struggling, but they're still going to vote for him. So that's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, there are people on the right who he has done damage to, but they love him. Well, they they love him because of that social hierarchy vote. Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to, you know, we have this conversation a lot in anti-racism circles because when we vote, we're talking about voting for the greater good. So if you look on the right, a lot of people who love Donald Trump or love those policies are basically like, I love the fact that because I'm white, I'm at the top of the food chain. So everything else, I don't care if I don't have health care. I mean, they care, but they don't think about it until they don't have it anymore, you know, but they really believe that if they have the proper, the right candidate for them in office, they're going to stay on top. They're going to stay on top and the rest of us are going to suffer. And they're okay with that because historically that has been this country. And the fact that there are white people who honestly believe that for me to be equal, they have to, they have to lose something is mind-boggling to me. So my equality means that you now have less. That doesn't make any sense to me other than the fact that white supremacy is the goal here. So it's just really frustrating. It makes me very angry, but I also think it's not going to change. And that is the candidate they're going to get. They're going to get that candidate who has those same policies. They're going to vote for him. They're going to lose things, but they're going to stay on that hierarchy. They may lose health care. They may lose jobs or whatever, but they're still going to be at the top of the food chain because they're white. And that seems to be the most important thing to them. And, you know, again, this is generations and generations of this. They're learning this from the previous generations, learning this from history, history that they learned, history that they don't learn. You know, they don't know anything about my history in this country, you know, um, and they're okay with seeing the rest of us not have basic human rights. Well, if we're being literal, that is... Uh, part of the definition of conservatism. We had this conversation with with Sherrod Brown that part of the, the DNA of that mindset is conserving a status quo, uh, mm-hmm. part of which is, is, is that social hierarchy. Right. Yeah, I agree. I've been reading your Facebook page, which is just a, a font of information. Can you share a bit about what motivated you to create it and what it is uh, accomplishing now? So the page actually came out of the group. So the Facebook group is private. That is the Real Talk page where we have a space for women of color to have conversations amongst ourselves, but also to train white women. Um, The public page came because we really felt like we needed to have a space to actually have conversations with people outside of the group and post articles that are thought provoking. And then also, you know, 
be able to answer questions of people on our public page. And that our public page has grown exponentially. We have a lot of interaction. Um, we post a lot of different things. Sometimes it's articles that I've written, other articles by other people. Sometimes it's just memes to get people talking. But it has definitely been a space that has been eye-opening in a lot of ways. One thing that social media does very badly is police white supremacy. You know, if you look at our page, we have a lot of racists who come onto our public page and they're just outraged that we're having any conversations around race. But on the other hand, we have a lot of people who are very, you know, sincerely interested in learning more about anti-racism work and working on themselves. Um, we have a lot of groups who contact us and ask us questions about what resources we use, about the training that we do, um, how they can get the training. Um, they ask, you know, very pointed questions about, you know, things that are happening in their organizations and how we would address that. So that happens a lot. So that page has been up for years now, and it's definitely a really nice kind of springboard for people who aren't really sure where they want to go as far as learning about how to be better white people, you know. There was one exchange in that vein that caught my eye, and I'm trying to remember exactly the context, but I think it was something you reposted in which John Stewart was making um, a really insightful comment about structural racism. And someone got on and said, says a privileged white man. And the response, uh, I'm guessing you or someone close to you uh, <laughs> wrote was, this is how white people are supposed to use their privilege. Right. So in the spirit of working on myself, can you speak to how <laughs> white people are supposed to use their privilege? Exactly the way that John Stewart did it, honestly. You know, it, what's interesting is there are a lot of people, a lot of non-white people who are just, you know, justifiably furious with white people. So they don't want to hear anything that you have to say. So I am not in that camp. Um, if you're a white person and you have some kind of an audience, a platform, you are the person that should be opening your mouth and pushing this anti-racism agenda. You should be listening to Black people. You know, if you're on social media, then you need to be reposting, retweeting. Um, in your case, bringing people onto your show like you're doing right now. Outside of social media, if you work for an organization where you're in a place in the organization where you have a voice on who is hired, who you're bringing in to present, to train, you know, what vendors you're using, you know, what contractors you're using, you have to use your voice to make sure that those people are getting a fair chance and that you're actively trying to diversify whatever it is that you're doing. As far as just speaking up, any time that you can push a topic or, you know, like when the George Floyd murder happened, you know, I saw a lot of public figures, white public figures really standing up and having hard, hard conversations with people online and being interviewed and talking about how that situation made them feel, but also saying, 
I can't imagine how Black people feel after having this happen again and again and again, and this time having it happen in such a visceral, violent way. You know, um, I think the white people who I really kind of appreciate and partner with and, and, you know, the ones who I think really want to make uh, substantive change are the ones who are willing to say the uncomfortable truths about systemic racism and about structural racism and about the fact that they know how much privilege they have and they are aware that that white skin is this incredible buffer for them that I don't have. And the fact that they can, as a public figure, say it is unfair. There's no reason I should have this privilege just because I'm white. And my goal going forward is to use that privilege for good and to address racism everywhere that I see it. And, you know, in a lot of cases for public figures who are really, really passionate about it, it is, you know, uh, pushing um, conversations other white people don't want to have. You know, it's going on shows and talking about white supremacy. Um, It is starting organizations or joining organizations that are already doing this work and lending their voice because they have so much influence. So those are a lot of ways that you can do that, you know, as a person who has a platform. And it's not being done nearly enough. I feel like when something really horrible happens, there's this groundswell of support and then it gets quiet again. And we have to stop doing that. We have to continuously have the conversations because even when there's nothing in the news happening, there are things happening that aren't being covered by the media. Well, I think that's an incredibly powerful observation and and insight uh, to end with. We will keep the conversation going. Leisha, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Leisha for joining me. Make sure to check out her book, The White Allies Handbook, which is available now for pre-order. The link is in the show description. You can also find Leisha on Twitter at LeishaMichelle11. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. 
Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.